Our scripture this morning comes from Genesis chapter 33, verses 1 through 15. But first, let us pray. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as your word is read and proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Now Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided his children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. He put the maids with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on ahead of them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. When Esau looked up and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maids drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And finally, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Esau says, said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor with my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please. If I find favor with you, then accept my, my present from my hand. For truly, to see your face is like seeing the face of God since you have received me with such favor. Please accept my gift that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have everything I want. So he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go alongside you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the flocks and herds which are nursing are a care to me. And if they are overdriven for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly, according to the pace of the cattle that are before me, and according to the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord and see her. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me, but he said, why should my Lord be so kind to me? This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, it has been quite the summer working our way through Genesis, from God's good creation out of chaos to Cain and Abel, and Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac, and Reuben, and Jacob, and Esau, we have been reminded how each of their stories ties to the other, and how every one of their stories is tied to us. I will be the first to confess, though, that this is easily the longest stretch of my ministry in which I have not preached from the New Testament. And one of our first graders said to me a few weeks ago, you know, you don't talk about Jesus very much anymore which is the feedback every Christian preacher hopes to receive. 
from the children. <laughs> it is certainly true, though, that our sermons have talked less about Jesus the person, but I think they have talked extensively about the faith that shaped Jesus into the person he was. Because Jesus was a Jew, a very devout Jew, and he knew and studied these stories. So while I'm not about to give up on the gospel, I think we do understand Jesus better when we understand the origins of his faith, since they are, after all, the origins of our faith, too. But to be honest, I can't decide if my first grade friend wins the award for the best line of the summer, or if that title ought to go to the Reverend Lucy Youngblood, who in the middle of her sermon a couple of weeks ago lamented, it's really hard to write a G-rated sermon about an R-rated story. <laughs> we are a congregation full of truth-tellers these days. But Lucy's comment actually gives me an opening to mention another story I've been thinking about all summer. In June of 1948, the New Yorker published a short story by a mostly unknown author named Shirley Jackson. It was called The Lottery. And I guarantee that if you've ever read it, you haven't forgotten it. The story opens with a lovely, picturesque day in small-town America, where residents are all gathering excitedly for their annual tradition of the lottery. Since it is such a long-standing tradition, everyone knows their part and knows what to expect. Everyone plays their role. The paper slips are all carefully prepared. The families gather with eagerness and anticipation. It's just like it is every year which means it's not just about the moment of the lottery, it's about all the celebrating they know that will come after it. So when the time comes, the ritual begins and the head of every family draws a slip of paper from a box. Bill Hutchinson draws the marked slip, which means it has been narrowed down that much further. Everyone in his household now will draw from a second box. This includes his wife, Tessie. Tessie draws the marked slip this time, and in response, the entire town, and I apologize for this turn of events, the entire town processes to a nearby pile of rocks and stones her to death. That gruesome twist at the end is maybe a couple of sentences long a shocking conclusion to what seemed to have been a lovely, if somewhat expected, story about the rituals that shape our lives. I suppose that is what the lottery is about, the rituals that shape our lives and the stories we tell ourselves about them and the stories we tell ourselves about the roles we play in them. I read the lottery in high school for an assignment, and I remember being so utterly horrified and shocked by the ending that I dropped the book physically. The truth is that the characters of all of these stories we're talking about, the matriarchs and patriarchs of the Bible, and Bill and Tessie Hutchinson alike, 
I'm not sure they would recognize the world we live in today with all of its technology and other advances. I have no doubt, though, that they would recognize us. The world has changed significantly, but in some of the ways that matter most, humanity has hardly changed at all. We return to our Genesis story this week, just on the other side of the Jabbok River, where Jacob has just finished wrestling all night with a stranger. A stranger he belatedly discovers is actually a messenger of God. At the brink of exhaustion, just as dawn is breaking, Jacob understands and he declares, I have seen the face of God and I have lived to tell about it. Having gained that insight, he also gains a limp from the place where the stranger pulled his hip out of his socket to ensure he never forgot that night what it was like to wrestle with God, but also maybe what it was like to look at God, to see the face of God. And a limp is small potatoes, really, compared to all the trouble and trickery that has filled Jacob's life. So again, a quick summary. Jacob and Esau were twins. They fought each other, even in their mother's womb. Esau was born first, his skin all flushed and red, and his body covered in hair. Jacob was born second, his skin pale, his body smooth. Esau grew into an outdoorsman, a skilled hunter who spent all his time outside, and he was his father's favorite. Jacob was quiet. He spent his days indoors, learning to help in the kitchen. He was his mother's favorite. The first trick that Jacob plays is convincing his brother, who is hungry from being outside all day, to trade his birthright for a bowl of stew. Now, a birthright is the privilege and status of being the firstborn. But Esau lives in the moment. And apparently, he feels like he is about to die of hunger. And what good is a birthright if you have perished of hunger? So he says, sure. And then years pass. Their father, Isaac, becomes blind and weak as he nears the end of his life, which means it is time for the blessing of the firstborn, time for the father to pass on his inheritance to the eldest son. Now, Isaac plans for all of this to take place with Esau, so he sends his son into the fields to hunt down a delicious dinner. And Rebekah, their mother, who favors Jacob, sees an opportunity. And while Esau is out, she prepares a meal, and then she tells Jacob to go put on his brother's clothes because they smell like the fields, and then to take goat skin and stretch it over his arms so that he feels hairy since Isaac is old and blind. If that sounds like an improbable plan, all I can tell you is that somehow it works. Jacob receives the blessing intended for Esau, and Esau is furious. So the last that we hear or see of him for a while, he is redder than ever before, flushed up with anger. 
And he is gripping a knife in his hands. As soon as our father dies, he says, I will find you and I will kill you. And so Jacob does what you would expect a lying, cheating sort of guy to do. He runs. So then 20 years pass, 20 years during which he gains a family by receiving a little of his own medicine. You see, he falls in love with a woman named Rachel and asks her father, Laban, for her hand in marriage. Laban agrees, but then by the cover of night, he tricks the trickster. The woman he delivers to Jacob is not Rachel, but her older sister, Leah, her face veiled and covered by darkness. So in the morning, Jacob discovers he has to work off not just one indebtedness, but two. And right around the time he finally manages to do that, he learns that his father has died and he becomes haunted not just by the reminders of his own bad behavior, but by the reminder of what his brother said, I'll find you and I'll kill you. Jacob has done well for himself, but now an angry Esau is just out there somewhere. Before I went to seminary, I helped run a summer camp for a few years. Part of my job was to care for all of the camp animals. Now, there weren't too many, but we had a few for educational purposes. And this included three snakes. Now, at one point, a hurricane took out the electricity to the building with the snake tanks. And since snakes are cold-blooded, they weren't going to survive there. Which meant the snakes and their tanks came to live with me. Now, to this day, I still don't know how it happened. All I know is that one snake got out in my apartment and I did not know where it was. Now it is one thing to have a snake in a secured tank. It is another thing altogether to have a snake on the lamb. I did not sleep for days, days, because I just knew that I was going to wake up and be face to face with this creature. I was a little afraid of the snake itself, but I was way more afraid of knowing that it was slithering and lurking somewhere nearby, but not knowing when or how it would choose to show itself. And that was just a snake that hadn't threatened to kill me. So I can only assume that Jacob didn't sleep for way more than a few days. Knowing that reunion is to some degree inevitable, though, he tries to be strategic. He divides his family, his people, his possessions, his animals, all of it into staggered groups so that if they do encounter Esau, and Esau really is as mad as Jacob remembers, well, maybe he'll wear himself out a bit if he has to kill everyone else before he gets to Jacob. That's the reunion that Jacob is expecting. 
And that's the reunion that the story has set us up to expect too. And if we're being honest, I imagine that we are all on board with it. Or at least we're not too upset by it. Because we have been reading for chapters, literal chapters, about Jacob's trickery and deceit and just general jerkiness. But when the brothers finally come face to face after all those years, Esau runs to embrace Jacob and they fall in one another's arms and they weep. And then Jacob looks at his brother and says, seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. You look so much like God, he says. And remember that he is actually in this moment the only person in the history of the world that would know that. We might be tempted to think that this is just another trick. Because it's Jacob. And because the truth is so shocking. Because once Jacob sees God face to face, he can't help but see God in every other face too. Which changes the way he sees everyone and everything. Walt Whitman wrote a beautiful poem. It's called Poem of Faces. He writes, sauntering the pavement or riding the country by road, here then are faces. Faces of friendship, precision, caution, the spiritual prescient face, the always welcome, common, benevolent face, the face of the singing of music, the grand faces of lawyers and judges, the faces of hunters and fishers bulged at the brow, The pure, extravagant, yearning, questioning artist's face. The ugly face of some beautiful soul. The handsome, detested or despised face. The sacred faces of infants. The illuminated faces of their mothers. I see them and complain not. And am content with all. You cannot trick me. This face is a lifeboat. This face asks no odds of the rest. This face is the source of all good. These faces bear testimony, slumbering or awake. They show their descent from the master, every one of them. Whitman knows what Jacob eventually learns. That when you stare into another person's face, you see the author of all that is. Because that's in Genesis as well. Back in chapter 1, God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. To see your face is like seeing the face of God, Jacob said. Somehow he gets all the best lines. But remember this, even if he was tricked out of his birthright and his blessing, Esau is still the older brother. Now he won't be the last older brother to be overlooked, but this whole story is actually dependent upon him. 
because he could have sent troops on ahead. He could have murdered his brother. He could have kept him captive. He could have picked up rocks and hurled them. He could have. And I don't think we would have judged him too harshly. Esau could have done so many things, but he opened his arms in an embrace. He opened his arms wide as if to say, all is forgiven. You and I, we are reconciled. What has been broken is bound back together. What was divided is united. What was hatred now is love. He opened his arms wide, wide enough to embrace and redeem all the sour history that had gone before. And all I know what to say about it is that in his face was the image of God, and in his brother's face was the image of God, and finally they recognized it. Now you will have to imagine this last part, but there will, there would come another, another whose face would bear the image of God, another who would hear this story and read this story and study this story and know this story inside and out, another who would one day open his arms wide too. And when he did it, he redeemed the whole world. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.